listening to the Broken Mirrors podcast, providing a unique set of views in the larger foreign policy, intelligence, and security world. I'm George Kenny of Electric Politics. You can find the Electric Politics podcast at electricpolitics.com. Now, back to the hosts of Broken Mirrors, Mark and Tom. Welcome to the second episode of Broken Mirrors, the Canadian podcast affiliate of War on the Rocks. In keeping with our realist stance, and inspired by a good bottle of Jackson Triggs Merlot, both good War on the Rocks traditions, in this episode, Tom and I are going to be looking at the soft underbelly of the global economy. Broken Mirrors. Most of the advanced economies now have fiat currencies, unbacked by any significant gold or silver reserves, that exist mainly in a virtual or digital state. Over the past 50 years, central banks and financial institutions have created a new central nervous system for our economy based on a complex and dubiously stable platform. This platform is known as the Digital Payments and Settlements System. This platform, and the economy it supports, makes these states vulnerable to a new form of economic warfare where the target is you, the individual. In this podcast, and through a set of related papers, we want to take a look at some of the issues, vulnerabilities, and opportunities that this situation presents. How economic warfare is carried out depends very much on how a society creates or supports its currency. Over the years, currency has changed greatly. The Romans, at the height of their empire, used coins made from real copper, silver, or gold. The Mongols in the 11th century used strips of silk to represent the gold they actually held in a more secure area. These were similar to the certificates later used by the Italians and then the Amsterdam traders at the height of the Dutch East India Trading Company. All three of these were forerunners to the idea of a paper currency backed by reserve holdings such as gold or silver. Now, in most of the advanced economies, we have a fiat currency which is backed by little or sometimes no gold or silver. More interestingly, much of this is actually digital to say that your money exists only in a zero or a one on a bank computer somewhere which has a server which you don't even really know where it's at. It should be noted that what the bankers are allowing to happen at financial institutions and central banks is far more fearsome than what terrorists have planned in the past. A failure of the jointly operated payments and settlement system would do more systemic damage to the advanced economies than any terrorist attack has done to date. Despite its criticality, little or no attention is paid to this vulnerability by intelligence or security-related agencies. Much as war may be too important to leave to the generals, our financial stability is too important to be left to the bankers, especially as we enter into what is sometimes called fifth and sixth domain warfare. Well, thanks for those insights, Mark. The question, of course, arises, why should you, the viewing audience, care? Well, one good reason would be that you and your day-to-day well-being are the targets in this new form of economic warfare. Economic warfare itself is by no means new. The basics of it are fairly simple, as they are for the basics of the economy. It's the extraction of resources, the transformation of resources, and the distribution of those transformed products. Economic warfare as a component of the economy was always attacking, either access to the resources, 
the capability to transform them, or the capability to distribute them. What has really changed now is that in the past, economic warfare was focused at the macro level in terms of targeting. Now, because of the virtual and digital systems, we have the capability of doing micro-level targeting. As you noted, Tom, the individual is now capable of being a target. Much of the same can be said of the four main physical domains of warfare, those being land, sea, air, and space. Nothing new here in that these four domains are where humans can interact within the laws of physics in order to try to get their opponent to bend to their will. But what about cyber war? What about when it combines with economic warfare? Is this different? More on that later in the program. So let's look a bit at how economic warfare has evolved over the last, oh, let's say 6,000 years, because I love going back that far. If we go back to some of the earliest forms of economic warfare we know about, it tended to be fairly simple. Either control of access to land, or control of access to resources, or control of access and the ability to grab finished products. You know, this is the classic trade raid routine that you find with the steep herders coming down and going, oh, we really like this product, thank you very much for making it, we're going to take it now from you. We actually do know that somewhere around 3500 BCE, there actually was a major war fought between the Sumerian city-states and that war was fought not only in Sumeria, which by the way is southern Iraq in case people thought that uh, things used to be nice and uh, golden and harmonious there. It was not only fought there, but it was fought up in Turkey. And this was fought when you had a situation of changes in technology use. So it's a case of the extracted products now being different and gaining a different uh, value and meaning. What the products were was a fight between the traditional products, which were flint and obsidian, and the new products, copper. Now the only reason we actually know about this fight, because this is before any writing existed, the only reason we know about it is from archaeological evidence coming out of Turkey when in the 1980s the Turks built all sorts of hydroelectric dams and they had pretty much every unemployed archaeologist in the world coming in to excavate. One of the things that was found there were a whole series of what were very obviously Sumerian colonies built right in the copper-producing areas. Most of them only lasted for one occupation layer, so say 15 to 20 years. Then they were abandoned. Why? There's also serious evidence of warfare. Some of them were burnt down. Sometimes bits of uh, spearheads, arrowheads, clubs bodies were found as well, which had clearly been killed. So we know that there was a serious form of economic warfare. We also know that about 50 years after that, so let's say 3450 or so, most of the Sumerian city-states actually collapsed in terms of their actual economies, in terms of where they moved. So that was the original form. Grab the stuff, run away if you can. This starts changing once we start getting currency. Now, two types of currency. The very earliest form we can call pure accountancy measure currency. And this is things like if you go into the Old Testament, you'll see uh, shekels or talents being mentioned. Now, talent, by the way, if you don't know what it is, is about 57 and a third pounds, not something you're going to carry in your pocket. That's the first form, very much accountancy measure. 
However, in the 8th century BC, we got a Lydian king coming out and going, hey, wait a second, how about we get something that I can actually, you know, carry around in my pocket, or actually get my slaves to carry around in my pocket. And this is when we get currency being developed for the first time. Now the intriguing part about developing currency for the first time, and this is coins, our classic coins, is that pretty much everybody can have access to them. So it actually spreads out the capability of wealth generation through an entire population, taking it away from the heads of households, the nobility, and the aristocracy. Oh, it does one other thing as well. It also means that now you can attack this symbol of wealth and the symbol of the economy. So we start seeing attacks being run on the coins by debasing them. When a king gets into trouble, and we see this in some of the Greek city-states, they start cutting down the size of the coins, saying it's still the same value. We also see them taking, say, gold coins and starting to cut them with copper and saying, oh no, it's still gold, it's still the same value. In other words, what we're seeing is a form of inflation going on in it. This also means that you can now attack the coinage. Thanks, Mark. As we noted earlier, the Mongols created a system of silk certificates. Each certificate would be issued individually and it would represent a certain store of gold, silver, or any other valuable trading commodity. This practice later spread to the Italians and then eventually to the Dutch as they were running the Dutch East India Trading Company. Each certificate, especially with the Italians and the Dutch, would represent a certain store of gold or silver. What's critical to note here is those certificates could pass from hand to hand and the value would transfer from person to person. At some point, if you wanted to, you could actually take the certificate in and get the gold, or you could just hold the certificate knowing that the gold was held securely at a central point. In short, and skipping over a couple hundred years of history, this is what has led to the $10 bill that's in your pocket or the 20 pound note that's in your wallet. Most people assume, wrongly, that that $10 bill actually is represented by a certain store of gold or silver sitting in a federal bank reserve somewhere. The reality is, in most cases, it's not. So for instance, the pound sterling is still called the pound sterling by many people, but in fact there is no sterling reserve behind it. This is what we call a fiat currency. In most cases now, for instance Canada, there is absolutely no gold or silver behind the currency whatsoever. In the case of America, the US Federal Reserve does hold several thousand tons of gold, but it probably represents less than 10% of the total value of currency circulating around. This is what we call decoupling. In the past, folks assumed that that note in their pocket was represented by a value of gold or silver somewhere else, but in fact it's been decoupled. That note now represents virtually nothing. Even more interestingly, a good deal of your money now exists not in a paper note form, but in a zero and one form on a computer somewhere. Your RRSP, your stock investment, your 401k, however you want to define that, has nothing behind it but a bunch of zeros and ones sitting in a computer operated jointly by the bank and the government. This, folks, is a virtual fiat reserve currency. While it's convenient and quick, it is also incredibly vulnerable to attack. Broken Mirrors In this segment, we're going to take a look at the payments and settlement system and look at where it fits into the various domains of warfare. What we really want to get at is 
two questions. Number one, how does it work technically and how does it work for the individual? So Tom, why don't you tell us how it actually works, when it works? Okay, Mark, so let's say you want to go to Frankfurt to visit a business contact. The first thing you might do is buy your international airline ticket online over at Expedia using your Visa card. While you're on the way to the airport, you use your debit card to put gas in the car. Once you get to the airport, you use a different credit card to park at the airline terminal short-term lot. Your destination hotel, of course, has been reserved ahead of time and is going to be paid with your MasterCard. While you're in flight, after having a couple of drinks, you decide to buy your host an 18-year-old bottle of scotch. You can do this doing, guess what, pulling out your American Express card. While you exit the airport, you stop at the bank machine to pick up a handful of euros. So you've got money to spend while you're walking around the street. Once you get to Frankfurt, you and your destination host head off for dinner and you pay for that with, guess what, a credit card. So what happens if it fails? Well, Mark, let's look at a number of things. The first thing you might discover is when you go to put gasoline in your car, the credit card doesn't work at the pump. You may try to get cash from an ATM, but you'll discover it doesn't work either. You go to the pharmacy to get that prescription for your diabetic child, but your card is refused. And the plumber who is going to fix your leaky hot water tank this afternoon calls you and tells you he's not coming because he cannot get gas for his van. Cash is suddenly king, at least in the short term. But the supplies of cash are short and your local bank may decide to not give you any cash because they don't recognize you. Why? Because you haven't been in your local bank branch for five years and they really don't know who you are anymore. Cash supplies, as we noted, are limited due to the just-in-time systems that fill the ATMs. And, of course, this ATM, as we've already mentioned, won't recognize your card. In short, everything you do, everything you need, everything you require, you're going to suddenly discover we've got a just-in-time system for it, and it's not going to work. So how much cash do you keep on hand? How much food do you have at home, especially if we tend to eat it uh, in restaurants a lot and pay for it with credit cards? If you're traveling abroad, or worse, if you're deployed with the military overseas, would you feel confident that your home and family were prepared to deal with such a contingency? Exactly the point, Mark, we're trying to make here. If you're the president or the prime minister of a country and you're facing an international crisis, what would happen to you if this attack on the payments and settlement system occurred just at a critical point in that crisis? Your troops overseas and your home front are going to be focused much more on their day-to-day -day problems than they are the mission at hand. In World War II, what they tended to aim at was both the distribution, the production, and the extraction targets. So, for example, the air raids on the Romanian uh, oil fields, which were the main supplies for the Nazis. We can look at the attacks on train yards. We can look at the attacks on factories. Those are all economic targets. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is actually fairly simple. Today, you do not need strategic bombers to attack economic distribution points. You do not need strategic bombers to attack economic production points. And you do not need strategic bombers to attack other points running around. In fact, we can look at the Stuxnet virus as a classic example of a very highly targeted cyber attack at a production facility. So what we're dealing with is some of the very classics, but we're also dealing with it in a totally new form. Well, Mark, let's carry on with these classic themes. Offense, defense, and mobility. These are the three classic factors in warfare, and it strikes me that they haven't changed in any meaningful way over the centuries. In the case of economic warfare today, we'd have to ask questions about defense. 
How hard will it be for countries to defend against economic warfare, and how hard is it they could be hit? I recently wrote a paper for the Queen's University Center for International and Defense Policy, and the paper was titled, a bit snarkily, Don't Call Us, Governments, Cybersecurity, and Implications for the Private Sector. In this paper, there's a fun quote from Jason Healy, the former White House Director of Cyber Infrastructure. He states that if the United States was engaged in a cyber war, Americans would be far better served by contacting AT&T or Microsoft than they would be by calling the Department of Homeland Security. Unfortunately, the same basic assessment is valid in the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and most of the advanced economies. The result of all of this is that we, as citizens and consumers, will largely be on our own in the event of an economic crisis or attack. Much the same can be said for the banks and the financial institutes. In the event of a major economic meltdown caused by a failure in the payments and settlement system, they're largely on their own as well. You know, Tom, for the past couple of minutes, we've been talking both about economic warfare and also a little bit about cyber warfare, and that might lead to a bit of confusion. When we look at actual domains, one of the key things about domains of war, land, air, sea, space, is that they all operate on natural laws. These days, our economy has adopted cyberspace as the natural laws on which it operates, simply because of organizations such as the International Payments and Settlement System. So when we're talking cyber attacks, we're actually talking natural law attacks on the current economy. And I think that's worth bringing out. Well, Mark, one of those attacks, in fact, the most feared attack, would actually be a loss of confidence attack, in which through virus or through malware or through SQL injection, you cause the owner of a system to lose confidence in their own numbers, their own output, without actually realizing they're being attacked. Now, this could occur at the individual level where a single person has their credit card fail. Or, if you wanted to have some fun, where a single person, such as a well-known senator, suddenly discovers they've got an extra million dollars in their bank account, which has arrived from an overseas intelligence agency. That, of course, gets leaked. At the group level, or perhaps the corporate level, you could see where an entire corporation could be destroyed. Now, for instance, in 2011, H.B. Gary Corporation was utterly destroyed, or at least their consulting arm, was completely destroyed by the group Anonymous in the matter of a couple of days. Consider at the national level, right now in America, there are 47 million people on food stamps. And you heard that number correctly. It's 47 million Americans are on food stamps. What's interesting is the American system now is actually run on SNAP cards or what would look a lot like a debit bank card. Because that system is run centrally through a couple of banks and through the U.S. government, it would be possible to shut it off or cause confusion in the system. The result of 47 million Americans, and that's the 47 million poorest Americans, suddenly discovering they have no money to buy food, raises some interesting questions about social unrest and rioting in the street. Now, the ultimate sort of nightmare scenario is in fact a systemic or national and international level. What would happen if malware is introduced into a central bank, which causes very minor mistakes to be made in transactions? Over the run of a day, nobody would notice. However, at the end of the day, when they go to close off the accounts, they would notice a mistake. Central Bank A will call Central Bank B and say, hey, you guys are messing up. Central Bank B will say, it's not us. 
and you get the, hey, it's you. No, it's us. No, it's you. No, it's us. And then suddenly it's going to dawn on them. They've got a problem. I think that is the most fearful form of attack is a loss of confidence attack at the systemic level. All right. Why don't we take a look at uh, some national level scenarios for a minute? Because I think that's what is usually on people's minds when we think about warfare, qua warfare. So, Tom, you had a couple of ideas on uh, a rather uh, intriguing idea coming out of uh, China. Well, Mark, let's imagine it's 2015. The U.S. presidential race is well underway at a time of a yet another economic crisis. The U.S. stock markets are crashing and this crisis is spreading around the world. Meanwhile, our Chinese friends and our Japanese friends decide to get into a minor confrontation over a set of, hypothetically speaking, small islands of no real value. However, Japanese naval vessels are deployed, Chinese naval vessels are deployed, and the war of words starts. The American president, feeling he must look strong during a time of crisis and an election, decides to send an aircraft carrier into the area. So far, very much a typical crisis scenario. However, China has some problems. They fear, as many people forget, that an economic crisis could result in the overthrow of the party because trying to feed 1.2 billion Chinese people and keep them happy is a difficult task. They also fear that if they get into a military confrontation on the high seas, they'll lose it, especially if they run up against both Japan and America at the same time. So what do the Chinese do when they're facing a loss of face internationally? They're facing an international crisis and they're facing an economic crisis at home? Well, they may do what Sun Tzu told them to do years ago. The best way to win a battle is not to fight it to start with. So how would they respond in a case where there's a crisis ongoing? One potential scenario, and you can see it in the writing of their uh, strategists, is to start a graduated series of loss of confidence attacks against the payments and settlement system. It would be a relatively simple task to, for instance, attack just banks on military bases in the U.S. homeland. So what you would do there is generate a scenario where the deployed troops overseas are fine, but they're getting text messages from home saying they can't buy food, they can't buy fuel, they haven't got gas for the car. You could graduate that to another level, as we've already discussed, by hitting the SNAP system, which is only run by a couple of banks in the United States at the central level, thus depriving 47 million of the poorest Americans of their source of food. Another loss of confidence attack would be freezing at the system level. That, as we've discussed earlier, would be the real nightmare scenario when the international payments and settlement systems nationally and internationally start to freeze up. And unfortunately, bankers, being bankers, when they don't understand what's going on, very often their first impulse is to guard their own resources by freezing the system and letting the other guy suffer. So the interesting question in all of this is not so much the, the loss of the international payments and settlement system, but the loss of confidence on the part of the US president. How does he behave aggressively and appear to be strong in the international arena when that bully pulpit, his own homeland, is starting to face a series of crises? That's an interesting sort of scenario that we uh, maybe we should be looking at gaming out at some point, Mark. I think that'd be interesting, and it it is a bit on the uh, you know the Frankenstein scenario in some ways, and it's also because we're talking about China, you know, one of the popular areas, but. We can see a whole bunch of other scenarios. I mean, earlier you mentioned uh, Gary being taken down. And this brings up a very interesting point. It's not only states that have this capability, it's non-state actors. And we can see, because it's all based out of 
cyberspace interlinked computer networks. One of the things we do know is that what used to take 50 programmers, 100 programmers to produce five years ago can now be done by five script kiddies in a small village in Dagestan going online. So one of the things we really need to look at now is the increasing generational vulnerability. I think you're right, Mark. Uh, quite often we tend to focus at the state level, and that's important. Um, but there's also the group level. I, for one, having studied terrorism for a bunch of years, I don't really believe Al-Qaeda has the capability to do this kind of thing, contrary to a lot of fear-mongering in the press. However, you're correct. What If a group is relatively small, but if they're funded and they're stable and they have a, a, a capability to think about a problem over a period of time, they, in fact, can generate a limited capability in this area. So could Al-Qaeda do this sitting somewhere in uh, Pakistan? I don't really think so. Could they do it in Yemen? I don't think so. However, let's look at Hezbollah. This is a group which is stable, well-funded, has a group of very intelligent people working for it, and bizarrely enough, they have their own think tank which examines exactly these kinds of issues. So the future is interesting. The future could be quite bizarre. And like I said, I think it's time we start to think about these kinds of problems. Well, Tom, we could probably sit around uh, most of the day and spin out some interesting scenarios, but I'd like to get back to uh, some of the basics that we talked about earlier, which is offense, defense, and mobility. And as you noted in that paper you published at Queen's, don't call the government for defense. So this means that a large part of the defense, especially when we're dealing with loss of confidence attacks, has to come back down to the individual citizen, which is in some ways an almost a return to the militia system. We have to be prepared to defend ourselves against economic attacks. And I think this is going to be uh, the main topic in our next section. How can we as individual citizens act to strengthen our defensive capability as a nation? Broken Mirrors. Joining us now to discuss how we might prepare for and deal with this situation, as well as how we need to make significant changes, is Michelle Couturier. Michelle has a broad background and is well-versed in this area. Besides being an architectural technologist and a project manager with an MBA, she has also worked for a major engineering firm, as well as having been involved in security matters in the financial community. She has a strong interest in social systems and sustainability, much of which is based on looking at issues of demand and supply. She also likes to look at issues of how the government has reached into our lives and is now telling us on an almost daily basis how our economy is shaped, how our purchasing systems are shaped, how our money is shaped. So one of the questions that may come up uh, during the course of the discussion is, how do we push back against this control of the government? So, Michelle, as someone who has a strong interest in social matters, how do you view this issue? So, Tom, I don't think the government has control to this day. Like, they, they, the, the way the system was built uh, 50 years ago or, you know, 100 years ago was built on, on predict, being able to predict human behavior and being able to predict markets based on people making decisions based on what they know, which means how they were educated. So in, in, in a sense, uh, there was a time where you could educate uh, and, and, and influence behavior and therefore being able to predict markets and how they will behave. That's no longer the case. Education comes from all kinds of sources, uh, the diversity of the sources, 
that people get information from is 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 huge. It's global. So and and the information and the the speed at which it travels has been proven to 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 work really uh, fast. Okay, so you would argue that perhaps ten or fifteen or twenty years ago, markets were shaped, decisions were made, uh, education was given. And the governments and the markets were able to control people through marketing, through economic theory. But you would argue maybe we've actually turned a corner already, whether we're aware of it or not, and people are now capable of making more decisions for themselves, linking up through community systems, linking up through computer networks, and they're able to perhaps have more power in shaping their own lives, more power in shaping their own destinies, economic or otherwise. Yeah, and and more power or less, basically, because what, you know, what, when a person buys stock on the stock market uh, 25 years ago, there was at least some level of predictability in what would happen and some level of predictability in, in the behavior behind who was buying that stock and not. Today, it's completely, um, it's a casino game, basically. And you can no longer predict. And, and it's it's computer systems that are actually creating algorithms that changes the path or the direction of a, of a stock price or... or or um, and I think that uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so so I mean I mean this this argument's been raised by a lot of people that retail investors, which is to say people have a four hundred one k or an RSP, used to invest in the stock market with some degree of confidence, certainly up to two thousand and eight, and maybe even uh, you know a little bit past that. Uh, but now a lot of folks like myself are looking at it and saying, look, high frequency trading. Uh, gold certificates and all this sort of stuff have turned the stock markets into casinos. Uh, so the average citizen is actually turning away from that. And I think you're probably correct in the sense that we can see the amount of retail money moving into the stock market is in fact dropping continuously each year. And it's it's the complexity of, of the environment around um, people making decisions about buying stock and selling stock. I mean, one person across the world says one thing and it influences behaviors going in one direction and the opposite happens on the other side of the planet and you can't control anything anymore. Like, there's no way. And where there used to be one source of information or very few sources of information that you would you would base yourself on to make a decision to buy a certain stock or not, now there's too much people talking about too many things speculating. It's all speculation and nothing is is real nothing has real intrinsic value in the end it's it's just a big system pushing transactions in one way or another but not being followed up by any added value to society or to um, people who actually have actual needs and 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 that are not being fulfilled right now nowadays certainly from what you're saying and, and certainly from what I've seen as well the goal isn't to look at the return on buying the stock. The goal is to look at the return on having done the transaction. So the more transactions that run through, a certain class of people get more money off of. So 9.95 TD Ameritrade shares. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that raises a very interesting point because it's basically saying that money is no longer tied into actual goods and services. Exactly. So the word value has shown up here. I think both of you have used the term value in, in the last few minutes. So I guess the question would sort of be, 
if the banking system and the stock market system is no longer really about value and the idea of investing in a product, watching the product mature and develop, and then accruing value because of the sale or whatever. If the stock market has become, as you described it, a casino, which I think is a fair term, and it's more about the transaction than it is investing in a company, how do we, as the average citizen, you know, the person sitting at their dining room table drinking a little uh, Niagara on the Lake red wine like we're doing right now, how do we put value back into our lives? So I have a friend who lives down the county. Uh, he's very technically competent in anything from heavy machinery to welding to electronics. He has a friend that runs a greenhouse that produces flowers and vegetables. They have a neighbor that produces maple syrup. They have another neighbor who runs a fairly substantial farm. And they've told me that increasingly they are starting to trade goods and services within each other. And they say for two reasons. One, it's just good neighborly stuff. But two, as the value of their lives comes under pressure because wages are dropping and investment opportunities are decreasing, they're looking at each other as a means of building value. Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about when you use value? Is this, is this the method we're gonna go back to is we build value in our lives for our neighbors and our community? We have to. I don't think we have a choice. And I think it's, it's globally, uh, globally there's a realization that's come there. You know, the entire world right now, I would put, I would bet on that, is, is uh, very much aware of the issues we're facing. Uh, the discussions are happening. They've been happening for years now. And identifying the issues, I think, is done, is, is now what do we do about it? What are the solutions that we can put in place that can bring uh, sustainability and that can ensure that we have uh, a contingency plan if the money system fails us one day and and it's it's subject to failure because it is electronic it is it relies on electrical sources it relies on many different um, calculations and and globally there's huge implications the fact that there's one system or one type of system right now that is running and and managing and recording all the transactions of goods and services happening across the world is a big risky thing. I think it's a big factor in how we decide to trust that system. And if the system is based on trust, um, what other type of systems can we create based on trust that could be our fallbacks, you know, that, that could be there if money does not you know, if money's not available one day because it's actually recorded in a server somewhere and you don't have access to a paper dollar. I, I don't have money in my wallet right now, no cash, and I'm relying on those cards to work when I need them. So there's already platforms in place, and I know the internet relies on electricity too, but at the same time, um, the community-level initiatives that could be created from online businesses could actually be sustainable beyond the internet and examples of that are a lot of exchange of services like uh, you know biking and cars and homes actually and uh, all of that is available now online there are platforms for peer-to-peer -peer sharing and that is a big huge demonstration I think of the new systems that could take place to replace um, the electronic currency system that we have, not to replace, but to, I'd say to um, 
to partner with. Because if currency exists, fine, we can use it as a method of transaction. And even these peer-to-peer -peer systems do use currency. I mean, they use dollars. But at the end of the day, a dollar is a product. And it's a product created by the government. And its value is based on calculations done by the government. And it's, it's about how, how much we exchange in, in our lives. So to really... Um, to really influence new ways of exchange, I really think we have to look at demand and offer, and that comes down to business, right? It's how ethical are we in our business decisions? How ethical are we in our offer? Are we creating stuff nobody needs, but we're convincing them they need it, you know? So what are the basic needs that would need to be met no matter what? if the system fails. Well, it's interesting. The words that keep showing up here are trust, value, exchange, and money. And certainly you've used the term peer-to-peer, -peer, which is increasingly showing up in everything from file sharing and music to how best to do intelligence between uh, two countries or two organizations. So let's, let's look at a bit of an extreme example. In countries like Greece and Spain, we already see situations where they're looking at youth unemployment, north of 50%. In Spain, the general population is suffering from over 25% unemployment. The real estate market is collapsing, and they're stuck using the euro as a currency, which is overpriced and overvalued from a Spanish point of view. So here's a population with 25% or more unemployment, and it looks like it's going to get worse before it gets better. So what's actually happening there is interesting. There's two, two things that sort of grab my, my attention. On the one hand are internet-based systems where people are essentially, it's a town square created on the internet where you can go and say, look, I can do babysitting in my home. I grow a certain amount of vegetables and I'm quite handy at fixing plumbing and electrical stuff. But what I really need right now is a good supply of jams and honey. What I could really like something like that. Or maybe I need baby food. But I'm willing to do exchange with you. Problem is I don't know who you are. So I'm putting this in the internet to find someone. Now, that's occurring at the internet level. Even more interesting in my mind is this is actually occurring at the town square level. People are literally walking into the town square, nailing up a notice that says, my sink is leaking and I need a plumber. I can't fix this. But I'm willing to guard children in my home and run a sort of an informal daycare center, and I'm willing to do basic labor for you. So are those the kinds of things you're talking about? And maybe we're seeing it already in Spain and Greece because they just happen to be going through the problem sooner than we are. And we are seeing that happen. So it's a reality. It's, it's not a reality right now here where I'm sitting, but I still see... Uh, I still see signs of that reality when I go to stores and I see smaller formats being sold or, you know, so whereas I would buy soap for a week and a half or three months or, you know, um, I can buy smaller formats for a dollar now. So do you think this is a part of what's driving more and more community level organizations are looking at creating their own currency, which is good just within a town? or their own currency, which is good just within a website, where I agree to do three hours of you know, construction work in your backyard, where you agree to provide me with a bag of carrots, and we come up with a fictional currency that we all agree to. Do you think that's what's driving it, is people's lack of trust in government? Or is it more just they don't understand the value anymore, but the, they understand the value of getting their bathroom fixed, they understand the value of a bag of carrots? 
If I can trust that I can buy a bag a bag of carrots, if I can trust that I can buy a bag of carrots with one dollar, and that I can sustain, and that can be sustainable over a long term, um, then everyone should be, everyone should have access to a bag of carrots. Everyone should then have access to a dollar. The way the system works right now is we're creating all these dollars but we're not creating access to these dollars for everyone. So if, if vegetables were currency, I think it would be a better currency than money. Not sure I'd agree on that. <laughs> you know, I, I can just imagine what bank vaults would look like. You know, yes, we have 18,000 tons of carrots stored in our bank vault and they've been there since you know 1605. <laughs> um, but, the, but the point is well taken in the sense that people understand real value when they see it. They know that a bag of exactly. rice today that weighs 10 pounds, it's two weeks, two months, two years from now, they still know that a 10-pound bag of rice will have some value in their lives. Whereas if they're looking at a $10 bill right now, because of inflation, because of wildly varying currency rates, they don't know if that $10 today, which will feed them for a day, two weeks from now, two months from now two years from now will ten dollars feed them for a day will it feed them for an hour or will it even get them like a you know a one liter bag of milk kind of a thing so it's fun to go back is sort of a an overview of this discussion and say we have looked at the past and we had a number of family village aristocratic or sovereign systems where there was wealth production as well as responsibility involved what we've got right now is a system where we broke down the family, we broke down the clan, we broke down the tribe, we broke down the aristocracy, and we replaced it with something called a sovereign state, a government. But it's not working. So people are searching morally, they're searching intellectually, and they're searching physically for a way of rebuilding value in their lives where they know they can work hard, they can participate in a community or family however defined, and they know that the other end of that, that value will come back to them. And right now, I would argue the whole RRSP 401k system is failing, the stock market system is failing, and people are trying to find a replacement. That's where we're at now. So the idea of going back to a gift-based economy, the idea of going back to a family or community, that's where we're going. How we choose to organize that is, is interesting. It could be blood, it could be geography, it could be an online community. But whatever it is, that's the direction we're moving. Well, Michelle, that pretty much concludes our session for this afternoon. We'd like to thank you for coming out, and particularly, we'd like to thank you for sharing your experiences and ideas on how we can restructure and redefine profit in our society, and how we can restructure and redesign our society in such a way we build value, not just for ourselves, but for those people around us. Broken Mirrors Sleep tight your Air Force is awake. Those of you of a certain age may remember a time when the citizens were told to sleep well at night as the government, its intelligence agencies, and its defense forces were aware of the dangers and ready to deal with them. Folks actually trusted the government to tackle the tough problems. Well, welcome to the trenches. You as a consumer and citizen are now at the front lines of a new form of warfare. You are the target, and you will be the first casualty in the event of an economic war or a cascading system collapse. Are you sleeping well at night knowing that your digital fiat money is safe in a computer, operating on legacy software and jointly run by the government and a collection of Wall Street, Bay Street, and City banks? By the way, did you know that your banks are now outsourcing their IT work to foreign countries where they have no control whatsoever over what's going on? 
We need to have a serious discussion at the individual level on how we have allowed ourselves to become dependent on the payments and settlement system. We need to have a discussion at the national level on whether or not the government and the banks are ready to defend the system. Internationally, we may need to discuss having a more effective enforcement mechanism than the soft methods currently accepted by the Bank for International Settlements. Sleep tight, my friends. Your bank is in bed with your government. Broken Mirrors We're back at A&M Confectionery, and Mark and Tom are wrapping up the latest Broken Mirrors episode. We've allowed the development of a fiat digital currency with little to no reserve behind it. We've migrated much of the functioning of our economy onto computers run by central banks and financial institutes. We call this the payments and settlement system. In effect, we've put all of our eggs in one basket, and we're starting to discover that large parts of that basket are made in China. Mark? This system is one example of centralized government control, along with others such as quantitative easing and long-term low interest rates. Can continued centralized control of the economic and financial system continue? Or do we need to look at a more resilient society based on family, community, and local organizations? One thing we have to look at is the basic question about the role of the state and the role of the citizen. No state can actually survive as a purely centralized entity. We said that with the USSR, and you know what? We were right. Look at what happened to them. One thing we really do need to consider is a greater concept of community resiliency. You know, back in 2003, when about 50 million people in North America lost power, one of the first things I noticed was that people started going out on the front lawns with barbecues. And as they went out there, other people who didn't have barbecues started bringing food out to them. By the end of the evening on the first day, I had 25 people sitting around cooking food, sharing food, and half of them weren't even people I knew. I remember coming in here to the store, and after 12 hours watching your father giving away ice cream to people. I remember the next day, when you and your father were sitting in here with candles trying to light the place up, writing down by hand what people knew and what people owed, because nobody actually had any cash anymore. That's community resiliency. But this isn't a new idea. John Robb, who runs Global Gorillas, has talked about this a lot. And one of the things that he argues is that in order to have a strong state, individuals have to take back local control from the state. This isn't an anti-state idea at all. In fact, to the contrary, it's a pro-state and pro-capitalist idea. What it really comes from is the old militia system in the UK which is a basic idea that says the state builds on the local communities and represents them. In the Anglosphere tradition, no president or prime minister can ever say, as did Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi. Well, thanks for that, Mark and Tom. Now, I'm not sure that I'll be able to sleep at night, but dare I ask, what's on for next month? Well, Abby, we'll make you feel better by just talking about terrorism next month. What we're going to do is to talk about how terrorism really works as a tactic. But don't worry, more people in North America have been killed in their bathtubs in the last 12 years since 9-11 than have died in terrorist attacks. We'll also look at another interesting idea. The first is, terrorists are not crazy. They're actually pragmatic, goal-seeking individuals. And quite frankly, that's what makes them scary, how normal they truly are. The second is that the real weapon of terrorism is not the bomb or gun, it is fear. 
And the last one is that all terrorism, at the end of the day, is political. Scary stuff, perhaps, but we can reshape our society to respond to this and prevail in the face of it. Broken Mirrors This has been Broken Mirrors Episode 2, The War in Your Wallet, for September 2013, a podcast covering issues in the intelligence, security, and military communities. For much more information about this episode and the series, please visit brokenmirrors.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, and listen to the extended material. Follow us on Google Plus and Facebook, and if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to plus one and like us there. The Descent and Dangerous are compositions generously provided by Kevin McLeod through Incompetech.com. Our thanks to our guests, Michelle Couturier and George Kenny, whose Electric Politics podcast may be found at electricpolitics.com. This episode of Broken Mirrors was written and presented by our host and executive producer, Mark Terrell, and our co-host, Tom Quiggin, producer, Tim Riley, intern producer, Abby Baruch, and associate producer, Stephanie Bach, who is also responsible for elevating the general tone with her artwork. My name is Donna Moore. This podcast is copyright 2013 Broken Mirror Studios and is released under Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivative works, 2.5 Canada license.